Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah, Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Jane Persian, who is a senior lecturer in history at the University of Southern Queensland, as well as a historian uh, focusing on Central and Eastern European displaced persons, many of whom migrated to Australia in the post-war period. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about your area of research and uh, what led you to it? Okay, so I look at post-war displaced persons who are the Central and Eastern European, basically refugees from the Second World War, but really from Stalin. They're anti-communist by definition, really. And my main focus is looking at the 170,000 of those who resettled in Australia in between 1947 and 1952. So I've written a book which looked at the scheme sort of broadly called Beautiful Bulbs. And that was really, I guess, I married into a family where my husband's grandparents were all Ukrainian and Russian displaced persons, um, and I'd never heard about displaced persons before. I think I was an undergraduate doing history in an Australian university, um, and I knew about the Italians and the Greeks, post-war migrants, but had never heard of these. These were the first non-British mass migrants to Australia, so you know they're quite important in the national story. I'd never heard of them. So that's really what set me on the path to looking at displaced persons. Is there any significance to the distinction between a displaced person and a refugee? Quite quite a big distinction. So displaced persons, the phrase is, I guess, the right terminology for these people. Um, This is before the UN Convention on Refugees, but the UN Convention on Refugees, I think 1951, came out of the issues that Basically, the, the Allies had to face with all it was like 12 million dis- people displaced after the war. The ones who get get termed displaced persons then came under the care of the Allies, and then eventually the ones who wouldn't go home, <laughs> the ones who wouldn't repatriate, came under the care of the United Nations, who then eventually had to resettle them because there were you know about a million who were just sitting in Germany and and Italy and Austria refusing to go home to the east mostly in the lands that Stalin had just uh, taken over by some, you know by one way or another uh, and so they were resettled then into western countries so i think in america we've talked about displaced persons most people think of jewish displaced persons but jewish dps were really a minority it was a we're really talking about these Central and Eastern European non-Jews who wouldn't go home, who wouldn't go back to either back to or to a land, to their home that was now under communist rule. 
Did the um, White Australia policy have any effect or bearing on uh, the kinds of people who were allowed to resettle in Australia? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, it did. So my book, the first uh, book is called Beautiful Bolts for the very good reason that Australia picked beautiful bolts. They had to be young, they had to be um, fit, healthy, and Baltic refugees or DPs were, you know, at the top of the hierarchy. They were more middle class. They were seen to be slightly more Aryan. And so we actually find that not many Jewish DPs made it, I think less than 500, and that's just a rough guess, into that mass scheme of 170,000 that came to Australia. So Australia interviewed the people they had to be looked at face-to-face, and that was really only <laughs> to see that they what they looked like, that they weren't Jewish-looking and that they would fit in, you know, famously uh, one of the migration officers says, said that they would fit in on Bondo Beach without people looking askance at them. So they very this very much is in the time of white Australia, yes. And, you know, it was a horrific, <laughs> horrific uh, thing for Australia to do, uh, but also allowed my focus now, which is war criminals or collaborators of various stripes, to get into Australia because they tended to be young and healthy and fit and white looking as opposed to, for instance, the Jewish GPs, who many of whom obviously were survivors from concentration camps and were not fit and healthy and obviously were not uh, white looking. You looked quite a bit at the Croatian DP experience. Could you tell us a little bit about where, you know, people who were Croatians who were coming here where were they coming from and what was the sort of ideological split in, in the people that were arriving? Okay, I'll just step back if I can um, because I'm not an expert necessarily in Croatians themselves. In all of my work, I've been looking at the displaced persons and looking at all of the different nationalities and ethnicities that were involved. So the Yugoslav contingent, of course it was Yugoslavia um, in the Second World War, is I think the most complicated contingent. Anyone knows anything about Balkans? Um, It's a little complicated. So basically the Croatians who obviously didn't want to be sent back to Yugoslavia either, many of them were summarily executed because they had fought for the Croatian nation, which was set up as, I guess, a bit of a quizzling government under Hitler. So that was uh, ruled by Pavlic and the Ustasha was the army under Pavlic. So most of the Croatians, if not all of the Croatians who ended up in Australia would have either been fighting for the Ustasha in the Ustasha or otherwise associated with, with that Croatian nation. Because the main reason they're not going back home is because they don't want to go back under Tito's communist government um, where they'll get reprisals because they were fighting against Yugoslavia, which pre-war the country had been Yugoslavia and after the war it was Yugoslavia. So you only get this little uh, tiny couple of years in the middle of, of the Second World War when Hitler's instituted the Croatian government under Pavlic in this particular area of the Croatian uh, national homeland. And, Jen, can you briefly explain who the Ustasha were? Again, with the proviso that, that I'm not an expert, but the Ustasha were definitely a fascist party. They had evolved from 
basically after the First World War, but then um, established in in the 1930s, where they were basically a paramilitary group and political party that was hosted by Italy. So they they had various training camps in Italy. They were terrorists, absolutely, you could call them. So they would go back uh, into Yugoslavia or, or elsewhere in Europe and attempt to assassinate, for instance, uh, Yugoslav leaders and cause other disruptions. So they were a thorn in the side of the Yugoslav government before the war even started. And there, I guess, they found um, a home in Italy under Mussolini, who uh, wasn't necessarily a 100% friendly relationship at all times, but they were rather fascist. They definitely had that um, ethno-nationalist, you know, striving in common. They were also anti-Semitic. And so there were lots of similarities then with the Nazi party as well. So uh, it almost became inevitable that that, that sort of alliance would, would occur in the Second World War and that Croatia, as, as happened in other places like Ukraine, that the Croatian leaders who are terrorists before the war would then try and set up a formal government under the Germans. They're taking advantage basically of German might and saying, hey, we can look after this little place for you. Um, and we'll make it our homeland, but we'll institute, obviously, our own government, which they did. And uh, the thing about uh, the Ustasha for uh, war crimes purposes is that they did commit very many war crimes. They ran concentration camps and killed Jews. They also killed many Serbians, um, and they really used the context of the Second World War and the Holocaust and the you know, just the violence that was going on to really get rid of so many of their traditional enemies. It became, I guess, a continuation of the inter-ethnic warfare that the Balkans is unfortunately known for, and which then carried on, of course, past the Second World War as well. Um, but they really. The Ustasha under, under Pavlic in Croatia really succeeded in killing you know, hundreds of thousands of Serbians um, to get out of the way. And this is a four-cornered war in Yugoslavia. It's really quite complicated. You've got the partisans, you've got you know the Chetniks fighting for a Serbian homeland, uh, you've got the Croatians and various others. But because Croatia had that tick of approval from Hitler for a little while, they were able to really um, institutionalise that killing. And, yeah, so we see see lots of what we will call uh, war crimes or, or crimes against humanity. Could you speak a little bit about the Australian branches of Ustasha that cropped up? Yeah, so it's really interesting, uh, and this is why the Croatians are, are so difficult for me to look at because there is so much information on them. They weren't just, as in other displaced person groups who came to Australia, they might have had a few people who formed their own sort of ethno-nationalist groups who were a little bit nasty, anti-Semitic, whatever, in Australia, but didn't really, nobody really knew about them. They sort of hid away in their own communities. Croatia was very, very different, um, the Croatians, sorry. So we actually have really top people, some top people move to Australia or at least people in Australia who are representing the top people overseas. So Pavlic actually evades the Allies at the end of the war and ends up in Argentina, and he forms a new group called the Croatian Liberation Movement, um, or HOP, which is led in Australia by Fabian Lovacovic um, and has branches all over the country. So these guys are going back. They're in constant communication with Pavlic in, in Argentina and 
Spain and, and everywhere else that the real leaders of the diaspora are and that not just the leaders of the diaspora, the Ustasha leaders. Then there's another group which formed after General Max Labrich, um split from Pavlic after the war, which was the Croatian National Resistance or HNO, and that was led by probably the most infamous Australian uh, or person who resettled in Australia, um, Stretsko Broba. He was very, very high up in the chain. He became at one point sort of uh, a deputy vice chairman of the Canadian-run they're always splitting into factions. <laughs> but, you know, he's quite high up in the chain of, of the HNO. And so we have quite a lot of, yeah, a lot of communication and a lot of organisation. They're really on top of the Croatian people in Australia. So not just the displaced persons, but after that scheme finishes, we actually get lots more young Croatian migrants coming through the 50s and 60s and into the 70s as workers. And the allegations are, I guess, that the Ustasha are leading all of the Croatian organisations in Australia by this stage and they're really coercing everyone to fund Ustasha organisations and there, you know, there are even allegations that young migrants sort of arriving in Australia in the 60s and, and early 70s would be forced to go to military training camps in Australia. So it's really highly organised and they have really close links to leaders of the worldwide movement. I saw a, there was a quote from some people in another split, the HRB, the Croatian yes. Revolutionary Brotherhood. They described Australia as the citadel of Croatian national consciousness abroad. Well, yep. Was there a reason that Australia was the citadel? Well, that's really interesting because the HRB then becomes one of the most successful Croatian terrorist organisations ever. And they're just a group of young guys. They're young. They're not displaced persons. They're younger than that. Um, but they come out of HOP, which is Lovakovic's group. And basically um, in 1961, they're sitting around at a cafe <laughs> and they're, they're grousing about the old guys who aren't doing anything. You know, why don't they go and fight Again, why don't they, you know, organise? We, we might go to military training camps and talk a lot about liberating Croatia, but we're not actually doing anything. And so they formed the HRB, which then not only became really popular in Australia and Australia sent terrorists to Yugoslavia, but became one of the most important international organisations so that the leaders moved to Germany and Spain and became one of the most important organisations for terrorism during, you know, the height of Croatian terrorism in the 60s and 70s. So extraordinarily successful. As far as why Australia, I think it really is that tight hold that the leaders had from the very beginning. So the Ustasha leaders really took control of all of the Croatian clubs. They took control of Catholic charity organisations. They took control of the churches. And so it's just really... Uh, it's a live organism in Australia, if that makes sense. It's it's not something that is just something that the old guys are talking about, which happens in other communities um, where it's just the veterans, you know, getting drunk and talking about the good old days. But this is something that's living. They're, they're constantly getting funded and it's really, really coerced as well. The HRB were involved in something called Operation Kangaroo. Was that a name that was given to their operation by outsiders or was that... Uh, what they called it, <laughs> and uh, could you tell us? Could you tell us what Operation Kangaroo was? 
So my understanding is that was their name, <laughs> Operation Kangaroo, which is quite a cute name, I think. For a terraflot, um, yeah. Look, for a, for a terrorist operation because they were kangaroos they were hopping over from australia so this is was in 1963 we have nine young croatian australians so again these are not the displaced persons these are younger guys all in sort of their 20s really so nine of them they're all carrying australian travel documents which becomes then quite embarrassing for the australian government they crossed the border from italy into yugoslavia with the intent basically of engaging in acts of sabotage. So it it was a disaster. All were immediately captured or, you know, within a couple of weeks they were all captured and they were all sentenced to between six and 14 years in prison. But it was sort of, yeah, it was a bit of a disaster. Nothing, they didn't actually blow anything up or, or achieve anything in those two weeks. But they did gain the distinction of being the first emigrant organisation in the history of Western Germany to be banned. So as a historian of, you know, displaced persons and terrorism, I'm quite proud of that fact. <laughs> this was an Australia, a homegrown Australian terrorist organisation that had basically just come out of a cafe meeting. Two years later, it's the first emigrant organisation in Western Germany, which is the hub of all of these various, you know, um, terrorist organisations from Russian ones to Ukrainian and all, all of the permutations in between. And so the splash of publicity, I mean, you can't buy publicity, right? And so throughout the whole world, they got masses of publicity for this. And that's when the organisation really started to grow. Were Australian authorities aware of the activities of the Astasha and how did they respond? Yeah, so this is the question that most people who've written about Croatians in Australia and the Ustasha in Australia have been quite critical of the police and of ASIO. It also became, uh, you know, a left and right issue, particularly under the new Whitlam government, where it was alleged that the Liberal coalition, you know, coalition government was giving right-wing groups an easy pass. Um, there's probably a little bit of truth in that. ASIO and the police actually had been keeping an eye on Croatian groups, as they had with lots of the DP right-wing groups. So they did have sort of casual informants. They did know the main people involved. They did know the groups, like they weren't completely in the dark. What they didn't know was that these nine young guys were travelling to Europe. They would be heavily armed and crossing into Yugoslavia as terrorists. So that was something that wasn't known by ASIO until it happened. And, of course, sorry, I should just say that in the trial, the HRB members said that they'd been trained at um, a Catholic, Croatian Catholic club in Sydney by Father Romac. So the Asian and the police knew all about Romac and the Catholic club, but they didn't, it came as a bit of a shock to them that apparently they'd been trained in handling weapons, bomb-making and sabotage. So they knew, they knew it wasn't that they were necessarily just ignoring white right-wing groups, obviously they looked more, they were looking um, in more detail towards left-wing groups and individuals, as we know. But on the other hand, I think a lot of those files are a little bit, you know, full of mistakes <laughs> and not perhaps the best intelligence necessarily either. Um, so there is, a, there is a massive intelligence that they had before 1963. But then, of course, once this all comes to light, 
they really get to work and, and start developing more informants. ASIO themselves were famously raided by uh, the Attorney General over this issue. Could you tell us a little bit about why that happened and what happened? Yeah, so this is probably where I differ or differ with some analysts in that this is part of the left-right issue that has that really dogged looking at DP or right-wing groups in Australia. So it became it probably already was a political issue, yeah, that they weren't looking at right-wing groups as much, not taking it as seriously. But I think I would agree looking at the files with the ASIO argument that these guys were thugs rather than, like they didn't, obviously they became terrorists, they didn't know that, that was a huge mistake. But in the main, it seemed to be all kept within the communities. And there were also doubts about, for instance, um, there were lots of bombs, right? <laughs> lots of bombs going off in the 60s and 70s, but it was always, you know, the Yugoslav embassy or something. And there were lots of doubts about whether the Yugoslavs themselves were setting these things to make the Croatians look bad. So it was, it's quite a difficult area to know right and wrongness. So even as a historian, you know, decades later looking at the files. So what happens then is Gough Whitlam um, becomes prime minister and the new security advisor of the new Labor Attorney General, Lionel Murphy, is Kerry Milt, um, who had been superintendent of the Commonwealth Police Force. And so there's a little bit of inter-office um, rivalry here between the police and ASIO. And Kerry Milt then pops up a couple of decades later with the war crimes trials. So he's very much against these right-wing groups. Um, but he says to Lionel Murphy, he basically just has a word in his ear and says, look, I, I think ASIO is withholding intelligence from you, from the government. And so Lionel Murphy, as the new Labor Attorney General, he is very suspicious. Um, the Liberal Party has done itself no favours by being seen to be very close to lots of these groups, including the Ustasha. So they would attend things like um, Pavlich's commemoration every year, certain members of the Liberal Party. So, you know, it does look suspicious. So he, he raided um, infamously the first raid on ASIO. And this was also, I should say, in the context of the Yugoslav Prime Minister was about to arrive um, and so there was a risk that the Ustasha or HRB in particular would assassinate or, you know, make an assassination attempt. And, uh, you know, the raid actually didn't really show much. It wasn't that ASIO was hiding anything. They just didn't have that intelligence. Maybe they hadn't looked for it hard enough, um, but they they weren't taking it seriously enough. Um, but there wasn't a smoking gun. Earlier, Jane, you made reference to the role of a priest in Sydney in training members of the Asasha to return to the country to uh, liberate it from Yugoslav authorities. I'm wondering if you can comment on what exactly was the relationship between the Asasha and the Catholic Church? <laughs> well, funny you should ask. Quite a strong relationship. And um, this Father Romac is such a great uh, person to highlight. He came in under a false name into Australia in 1955. So he wasn't a DP or he was a DP but didn't end up in Australia under the DP scheme. So he had gone to South America as part of the famous rat line, which is when members of the Vatican were uh, basically giving Eustacia, Croatian Eustacia members, including Pavlich, 
and infamously, you know, Klaus Barbie, which uh, Father Romack was involved in, um, giving them false documentation, uh, they would then migrate to South America and live forever happily. And so Father Romack was not his real name. That was also false documentation. So he was helping in the Vatican operation from the South American side once he got to Bolivia. There are other allegations about what he got up to during the Second World War. I don't think any of that's been necessarily established, but he was definitely involved in in the rat line. And so there were allegations from, we have in Australia, uh, a man called Marian uh, Jogovic, who is the main voice in Australia saying, hey, some of these guys are really suspect. There is Stasha. Um, he knew that this wasn't his real name. He was had links to the Yugoslav embassy, which is where he was getting some of his information from. He knew that this wasn't his real name. He didn't know who he was. And when he was questioned by the police and then by HO, Father Romack eventually admitted that, no, it wasn't his real name. He'd come across on basically uh, false documents. The Catholic churches, quite a few of the priests were alleged to have been, for instance, um, part of the Ustasha army, serving as priests in the Ustasha army um, and for the, the Pavlich government. And then also the churches and various Catholic charities were used as organisational hubs for the Ustasha in Australia. So very close, more closely tied than any of the other DP right-wing communities. Jane, what were the connections between the Ustasha groups in Australia and local far-right organisations? There's not a lot of evidence for this, but we do have some evidence that Croatian Ustasha were involved with Hungarian, uh, the Hungarist movement, which are the right-wing Hungarians in Australia. And one of the Hungarians, um, Franz Molnar, co-founded the National Socialist Party of Australia in the 1960s with an Australian. Um, and it went on. He didn't last long. That <laughs> was then taken over by more and more Australians, but it was the first Nazi party in, you know, in the post-war period. Uh, and he, we think that he basically encouraged links between his fellow Hungar- right-wing Hungarians. We know that also with the Ustasha. So there are various reports of, for instance, Cass Young, who, who some people might know, the uh, National Socialist Party of Australia's Cass Young, preparing material for discussion at Ustasha meeting. We know that Hungarians raised funds for the Nazi Party who actually um, enrolled in an election, in a you know, federal election, <laughs> they ran for a seat. The Hungarians raised funds. I'd be very surprised if the Ustasha hadn't also raised funds. They definitely were known to have sort of carried out shooting practice and things like that with various Nazis. As far they also sorry, I should say also that the National Socialist Party of Australia was selling um, the Hungarista flag and the Croatian Ustasha flag at this time. So there are definite links. As far as who that is, because sometimes we say Eustasha and, you know, it could be one of a number of groups, right? We think, I think, I should say, that this is Adolf Jankovic, um, who had personal links with Franz Molnar, the Hungarian. He had links with the HRB, but he was an older guy. But he sort of formed a rival group to HRB, a Croatian youth movement, which was fairly militant. So we're looking at, you know, lots of, splinters sometimes um so i'm not can't say definitively how many Ustasha or, or 
Croatians were involved in the domestic Nazi scene, but definitely there were groups and definitely Adolf Jankovic from Sydney and then he moved to Canberra. Presumably there was uh, also opposition to the Astasia among Croatian migrant communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? So again, I should say, talking about evidence, that most of our evidence as historians comes from government files, you know, from major files and police files. And as you can imagine, most people are not speaking frankly. There hasn't really been anything from within the community. Work from within the Croatian community in Australia just tends to say, no, there was no Yastasha. So we know that there were lots of splinters. We know that some Croatian people were not happy with the militancy. They thought that, you know, the war was over and just wanted to get on with their life in Australia. But really what we see in the files is a leadership struggles between between various people. So Marian Jovic, who is the only he's the only real voice coming up with all of these allegations, lots of names. So he's constantly writing into leftist newspapers uh, like the Tribune and the Guardian, also into the government. He writes to various parliamentarians and he actually becomes quite close with Jim Cairns and also with Lewis Kent, who becomes an MP later on, who was um, a Jewish Yugoslav um, who changed his name, obviously. So he's really he's really the one that we see. He has an awful lot of material, and that's where a lot of the material that we see in the Mark Aaron's book originally came from. And also John Playford wrote quite a few articles in the, I think, the mid-60s, really relying on his material. And if you look at, I mean, there's so much material around the Murphy raid on ASIO and uh, Lionel Murphy makes a very, very long speech in which he makes certain allegations. That all came from Jovic. And unfortunately, the war crimes, the special investigation unit in the 1980s found that there was no documentation to back any of these allegations up. He hadn't kept any documentation. They only found in his home six boxes of newspaper clippings. The special investigation unit also talked to Jim Cairns and Lewis Kent and asked, you know, did you ever see (laughs) any evidence for this stuff? And they all said, no, no, we were just given you know, verbal evidence, basically, which is where, you know, it can become quite tricky figuring out what was, what was true and what was just allegation, because it really does just come from one man who had quite strong links with the Yugoslav government and the embassy in Australia. Not that it wasn't all, not that none of it was true. Well, in, in summary, Jane, would you, would you agree with Billy McMahon's assessment that the Astasha were a good bunch with a good cause? Cameron, no. <laughs> that was Come Andy. On. Just for the record, that was Andy. Andy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He's trying to set you up. He is. Um, no, I should say that I, I've been approaching this very much, uh, I, we hate that word in history, with objectivity, but um, unfortunately it is just such a maelstrom of allegation and counter-allegation um, and very, very little actual evidence for for instance, war crimes, which is what I'm mostly interested in. So there are there's lots of evidence, for instance, of the HRB and its international terrorist activity, which fit into um, the global Croatian diaspora terrorist activity in the 60s and 70s. I don't think that's under any, you know, that's absolutely true. They were one of our first homegrown 
bunches of, of terrorists who then went back. So Australia, which forced the Australian government then to make legislation banning that. You would think that would already be banned, but no. So absolutely not a good bunch. The, I mean, the Ustasha, it is very difficult when you're talking about fascism to pick apart nationalism, which, for instance, we can see in the latest uh, battle, you know, the latest war in Ukraine, that most people in Western democracies have sympathy for that, right? Against the more violent um, and anti-Semitic and, you know, violently ethno-nationalist, which which is what we put under that umbrella, umbrella of fascism. So I think that most scholars would be quite comfortable in saying that the Ustasha was a fascist organisation and it remained a fascist organisation to some extent, even into the 60s and 70s, even with these young guys, they were violently ethno-nationalists. They had no problem thinking about still killing hundreds of thousands of Serbs and definitely were anti-Semitic and everything else that goes along with that. So while I can understand the Australian, you know, sections of the Australian government saying, well, they're only bombing communists, right? Communists are our enemy. We're in the Cold War. Who cares? It's only that that community. It did turn out to be short-sighted because they did actually, you know, go overseas with guns, caused embarrassment to the Australian government and embarrassment to ASIO because even though they sort of came out of the raid okay, it was enormously embarrassing that that even occurred, that there was so little trust in the Australian security services. And I think that was even looking back in the files, you think, well, okay, ASIO had done their best sort of. It really wasn't good enough that it wasn't a good enough best, that they didn't take it um, quite seriously enough as they were to do then after 1978. Well, Jane, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if people want to read more of your work, you're on Twitter at Dr. J. Persian, P-E-R-S-I-A-N. Uh, the book, your first book is Beautiful Bolts, and uh, we should also recommend Histories of Fascism and Anti-Fascism in Australia out through Routledge, which you co-edited co-edited i did yes thank you well folks that is our show we'll be back next week until then see you later see you then
In 2003, the American peace activist Rachel Corey was killed for opposing the demolition of Palestinian homes in the Gaza Strip. Join Free Palestine Melbourne and Students for Palestine Victoria for a public screening of Rachel, a film about her murder and its subsequent cover-up. Come and support the struggle for a free Palestine, Thursday the 23rd of March, 6.30pm at the Old Arts Lecture Theatre, University of Melbourne. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Would you like to reduce your risk of dementia? The Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter.